0: This is Digital Pathology Today. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joseph Anderson. Welcome to Digital Pathology Today. I'm Joe Anderson. Whole slide imaging has been with us since around the year 2000. And to paraphrase Ernest Hemingway, adoption has been gradual and then all at once, particularly in light of the recent COVID 19 global health emergency. The CAP issued guidelines surrounding validation of whole slide imaging for diagnostic purposes in 2013. The big news now in 2021 is we are going to have an update to these guidelines and it is not only going to be the College of American Pathologists but also the ASCP and also the API Association for Pathology Informatics. Joining us today uh, to discuss the content and release of these new guidelines is Dr. Andrew Evans, chair of the Digital Pathology Committee at the College of American pathologist and Nicole Thomas, director of the CAP Center for Evidence-Based Guidelines. This episode of Digital Pathology Today is brought to you in part by the Digital Pathology and AI Congress USA. Discover how you can utilize AI and digital pathology to advance your pathology practice to enable enhanced patient care and further drug discovery at the virtual Digital Pathology and AI Congress USA, May 26th. Listeners of the Digital Pathology Today podcast can save $100 on their registration through the link on the podcast website. Visit www.digitalpathologytoday.com and click on the Digital Pathology and AI Congress USA link today. We're here with Dr. Andrew Evans, uh, chair of the Digital Pathology Committee at College of American Pathologists, and Nicole Thomas, director for the CAP Center for Evidence-Based Guidelines. Welcome. So we have big news. There's an update to the 2013 CAP guidelines for whole slide imaging. Maybe Dr. Evans, tell us big picture when these guidelines are coming out and what If any are significant changes, and and why we needed an update to the guidelines.
1: The uh, CAP Pathology and Laboratory Quality Center, or the center, generates guidelines, evidence based as much as possible for technologies such as um, whole slide imaging, digital pathology uh, as applied to patient care purposes. So the initial guideline, there was one, the initial guideline was developed in 2010, released, uh, work started on it in 2010 and it was released in 2013. And there were 12 recommendations that would provide laboratories with guidance on the fundamental question that needed to be addressed when you're implementing a new technology such as this, which is what needs to be done to validate a whole slide imaging digital pathology system for patient care use. As I said, there were there were twelve recommendations that came from that. In terms of impact of that guideline, there have been close to twelve thousand separate PDF downloads from the archives of pathology and laboratory medicine website. It's been cited uh, upwards of two hundred and twenty-five times in various journals and journals that are traced back to 35 different countries. So it's uh, it it has definitely had impact. It's something that is sought after this. This information has been been well utilized from based on that the uh, the center um, Nicole can describe the the process in detail, but the uh, the guidelines go through a four-year cycle where they're revised. Can be revised sooner if there's new breaking information or or some change in technology that brought us to the the current revision. That guideline is uh, has been been done been completed and has gone through in the final stages now leading to publication in Archives of Pathology and Lab Medicine a Whole slide imaging
0: has been with us since around 2000 or 1999 or so so we finally had guidelines around 2013 I know it takes a lot of time for dust to settle and things to shake out and you folks at the CAP early to get our arms around what's important so I think that's great so Nicole tell us a little bit about what you do at at the CAP in the Center for evidence-based guidelines. I think it's a very exciting field. Things are evolving and now we have processes to update guidelines and what's also new is collaborating with other specialty societies. So CAP came out with the first guidelines in 2013 but now you have other collaborators too.
2: Yeah it's um, a very busy and fascinating time for evidence-based guidelines and I'm really happy to be the director of the center at the CAP. So what I do is I help our Um, guideline committee, the, the ones that actually have oversight of all of our panels determine which topics we should address, and then figure out how to get it done operationally. For this guideline in particular, we're really happy to have collaborated with a couple of other organizations. Um, One of the things we do when considering um, topics is also think about who we might work with, because obviously we want everybody to be on the same page. And if we're in the same space, there's no need for guidelines to come out from separate organizations if we can tag team together. And so that's been our approach. The last few years at, at least. And for this guideline, we really think about who are all the stakeholders in the space. And so we teamed up with our partners, um, ASCP and API. And a lot of times staff and and members alike are members of multiple organizations. And so we thought this, we have great synergy. We have a lot of the same audiences and this guideline would apply to the broader population. So that's how we selected those two uh, collaborators for this time.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's a good point. You know, as medicine and pathology evolves and the various stakeholders evolve, there's no need to reinvent the wheel or to have competing sets of guidelines. I've noticed this also in the guidelines that CAP has been involved with for breast cancer, for example, CAP and ASCO are working together. And for lung cancer, you're working with the International Society for Lung Cancer and so on and for colon cancer even. And so it, it really is a multidisciplinary approach and a multi-professional society approach. And often these guidelines come out and they have bullet points or may, they may be seen as kind of pithy and hitting the high points, but there's a lot of work that goes into these guidelines. So maybe tell us, maybe give us an overview of what the process looks like to come up with these guidelines. I'm sure it is a multi-year process. It involves pouring over the literature, coming up with best practices, getting the experts you know, on the committees, allowing them to meet in person and online. So what what does the process look like?
2: Sure. Well, it all starts with a topic and anyone can submit a topic. You don't have to be a pathologist. You don't have to be a member. Um, We have a place on our website where you can submit an idea for the center guideline committee to review and address. And once we understand what the problem is that we're trying to solve, and if we think that a guideline is a good way to uh, solve that problem. We will decide what the scope is, what our key questions for the research are, and figure out the appropriate panel members. A lot of times we have subject matter experts, but we also include patient advocates or others at large who may not necessarily be pathologists, but would play a role in being a part of either the implementation or our end users of the guideline. We form, after we come up with our research questions, or key questions as we call them, We will have our medical librarian perform a literature search. We use this process following the National Academy of Medicine standards. That's one of the big things um, in the guideline world that you try to follow. And so it requires a literature search and a systematic review. And so our members on our panels all participate in the systematic review. Oftentimes, it starts with thousands of journal articles. And you whittle down using the outcomes that you've selected ahead of time to figure out what would answer the research questions. And you come up with a lot of evidence tables and you pour over all of the data from those tables that came from the studies, the panel meets to determine what the draft recommendations will be. After that, we have an open comment period. Usually it's about two to three weeks. We send all member email blasts, press releases, use the social media to try to get all stakeholders to provide feedback about those draft recommendations. And so that's really important in panels to understand what the acceptability of the statements are, if we'll be able to implement them, and just think about things after having been in the weeds for a while. And then once we get all of that feedback, the panel reviews all of the evidence again, reviews all of the comments. Um, finalizes the recommendations and draft the manuscripts. There's a big approval process. And then we publish, usually in the CAP's journal, which is Archives of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine. And then we go into the procedure of maintaining and monitoring, so as Dr. Evans mentioned, um, tracking if individuals are aware of the guideline and if any practice changes have come out through the use of uh, questionnaires that we developed, tracking things like citations and tweets and social media media impressions and things of that nature. It takes about two years, sometimes upwards, and our chairs or co-chairs are usually involved before the panel is even developed. But yeah, two, about two years or so to develop. You
0: mentioned social media. We certainly live in interesting times and we're on a podcast right now. Maybe just one more question before we get back to Dr. Evans. So roughly what, what would you say is the spirit of the guidelines? I've heard it said that it's, it's guidelines. It's not guide laws, right? It's not regulations it's more of best practice best practices and really a way to elevate the quality of what we do and to better serve doctors and patients but how does it play into regulatory matters uh, maybe for lack of a better word and maybe the laboratory improvement program and the inspection process for CAP are laboratories bound to use these guidelines are there penalties if they don't or are we just trying to be a resource at the CAP for our, for our members?
2: Yeah, that's an excellent question. We get that question a lot. So, evidence based guidelines are just that they're guidelines that um, are used for making clinical practice decisions. Um, obviously, the process is um, using experts and, and people on panels reviewing data. Um, and coming up with what they think the recommendations should be. These aren't um, the same thing as um, what might be required by checklists from the CAP, although some of our guideline recommendations do become part of our checklist. So that is a, a distinction. Um, now, we believe that these evidence based guidelines uh, should be followed, uh, but there's always individuality that you have to look at. There are always situations where you should use your expert opinion and how to handle particular things. So that is a distinction. But it is based on evidence that is reproducible. And as part of a systematic review, it's really giving people a a chance to look at the same evidence to, to try to come up with and we will hope that if somebody did the exact same things we did looking at the exact same papers we did that they make a very similar if not the same recommendation we want people to use them it is not mandatory that you do unless it becomes um, a checklist question and you are using a cap checklist
0: okay so this is this kind of represents you know, as you said, evidence-based guidelines and really an assemblage of all the the top experts and really distilling down all of those learnings and, and knowledge into some uh, quantifiable guidelines. Dr. Evans, so before we get into the, the, really the heart of the meat of these guidelines, maybe tell us, give us a rough overview of what you do on the Digital Pathology Committee at CAP.
1: I've been the chair of the uh, Digital and Computational Pathology Committee at the CAP for the last four years. And prior to that was uh, a member. Of the same committee since its inception in uh, in 2010. That committee basically serves as a as a resource, a guiding resource for uh, for the CAP and particularly the Council on Scientific Affairs and related committees within the CSA, it functions as a resource for implementing this technology for a whole variety of purposes, whether it's research, teaching, education, or clinical use. We've been involved in a number of different projects, and one of the big things is, of course, best practices, because this is, a while well, the technology has been around, whole slide imaging digital pathology has been around since 2003, so we're coming up on pretty close to 20 years, so it's not brand new, but for many laboratories, it is new. There's no question when you implement it for patient care, it's disruptive. It's not, it, it alters workflows. So there is a lot that goes into, uh, into navigating that adoption curve for digital pathology. And that's been the major, major role that our committee serves and will continue to serve um going forward with the emergence of machine learning and artificial intelligence this is another component of uh, computational pathology that now come under the umbrella of our committee a- among several others within within the CAP the overarching role is for us to act as as stewards and as a resource for the CSA and and CAP member laboratories for this technology
0: it's good to keep those timelines in mind and you know certainly new technologies evolve clearly, I think what is on the horizon now, or maybe actually with us now in actual practice, AI systems that can assist us, you know, in helping us do our jobs better. So whole slide imaging really became a reality around 1999 or 2000. Your committee came into existence around 2010. And then the first guidelines uh, came out in 2013. And I heard both you and Nicole kind of say something similar, really At the heart of what you're doing or any scientific endeavor you basically have a very simple question that hopefully you can provide a very simple answer to and the question seemed to be roughly when the first guidelines came out is how do we validate a whole slide imaging system for diagnostic purposes in clinical practice so those were the guidelines in 2013 and there are i believe 12 bullet points or 12 consensus guideline statements Take us through the, the high points of that, if if you could. It seemed to me like it was about 60 cases validated comparing glass slide approach with a light microscope, and then comparing those to the results you would get doing this digitally.
1: That's essentially the element of it, is the, the main element, is um, just establishing diagnostic concordance. Um, between two modalities simply put the fundamental question is would the same pathologist make the same diagnosis off of the same slide regardless of how he or she reviews that slide as either a glass slide with a light microscope or as a whole slide image
0: okay where it kind of gets interesting to me is i mean i think you have to make it general because there's so many there's almost an infinite number of use cases and there's many different components to it And basically, I think the guidelines say that you need at least 60 cases for an, an application intentionally or by necessity, it's a little vague. Like what is an application is a question in my mind. And it says in the guidelines, you know, frozen sections would be one application. Cytology would be an application. Hematology would be one application. But how much can we refine the definition of an application or is it by necessity going to always be vague?
1: Yeah, I think we can uh, use the categories, all of which you mentioned, although I should point out that uh, hematology and cytology were out of scope for this particular guideline. So the use cases or applications that uh, that we focused on were the sort of the, the bread and butter applications for surgical pathology, which is frozen sections, consultation, quality assurance activities and primary diagnosis
0: so have you ever have you gotten input to say well maybe an application should be you know looking for two or three glands of prostate cancer or looking for micrometastases under the capsule of a lymph node i mean have people taken that approach to define what an application is
1: Uh, People certainly have gotten that granular, but I think it's better to take uh, more of the 40,000-foot view that that we described before, so to describe these umbrella applications. And then within each of those, there are, of course, certain things that you're going to be doing that would require a more granular assessment. So, for example, if you're going to implement a whole slide imaging system for frozen section coverage, remote frozen section coverage, then as part of that validation process, you're going to want to, to make sure that you study cases that are relevant to the application and p- specifically to the institution from which the um, which the, the uh, frozen sections would be arising. So you'd want to, for example, if you are going to implement um, a system for f- covering neuropathology frozen sections, you're going to want to make sure that your validation set uses encompasses slides, neuropathology slides, frozen section slides from that institution. You're not going to want to take dermatopathology slides from another institution because it's it's not it's not the same. Technically speaking, it's not the same the same application or use case. So that's where the specificity comes in. And then with regard to, uh, to granularity of assessment, that just comes out as part of the validation process. So for example, if you had, lymph nodes that are submitted for interoperative assessment and you're looking at them by frozen section, most pathologists are going to know right off the top that what you'd be looking for would be evidence of malignancy, micrometastases, etc. So all of those diagnostic activity is just going to be inherent and intuitive in the uh, in the validation process. I mean, I think it is important to, um, to note uh, a potential criticism of the guideline, if you will, has been that it's too prescriptive. Why are you providing exact numbers, etc. And I think generally it's fair to say that all of us pathologists are very detail-oriented. We like numbers, we like cutoffs, we like performance benchmarks, we live and breathe it every day. And that includes with uh, lab inspections as part of the lab accreditation program with the CAP. If you're implementing a disruptive technology, such as a new and disruptive technology for your lab, such as, uh, as digital pathology, then logical questions are going to arise. And these are the questions that have come up time and again over my years of involvement with the CAP Dig and Computational Pathology Committee is, you know, how many cases, what types of cases, what's the washout period between whole slide imaging and digital review, and what's a pass-fail mark. People want numbers, they want cutoffs, and there are other guidelines out there. For example, the uh, best practices recommendations from the Royal College of Pathologists in the United Kingdom doesn't set out specific numbers, but I think we can get into this a little bit later the the numbers that we've come up with for example 60 cases there is an evidentiary basis to that number it's not something that was just pulled out of thin air it, it did come from from literature review and assessing concordance rates stratified by the number of cases that were studied in validation sets and since the original guideline has come out in, in 2013 there have been a considerable number of new studies that have come out that have used the 2013 guideline and others you know, as part of the, these publications, the numbers of cases in the validation sets were stated and then you can then compare and stratify with respect to concordance and then come up with the number of recommended cases, a minimum number to reach a particular concordance target. And this is where the um, uh, 60 cases uh, arose, that's how it was developed. And so this also applies to other, other aspects of the guideline where there are specific numbers. This episode of Digital Pathology Today has been brought to you in part by DJT Solutions, your single source for all your digital pathology requirements, from consultation services to system requirements, including installation, training, and life cycle support. Since 1995, DJT Solutions, we are your best choice for your best results.
0: Yeah, i think that's interesting and i i wholeheartedly agree with you in my experience people you know people want guidelines. people want numbers they want cutoffs they want hard data and i think there's always going to be different personalities involved and i think as physicians and scientists really it is incumbent on us to devise our own experiments but i think guidelines have to be practical and have to offer hard solutions to people or at least hard recommendations that are easy to follow um, so one other thing in the guidelines in 2013 is that what you're validating is the real-world clinical environment in that the technology will be used and you're validating the whole system which has many different components it's not necessary to validate each separate component those components might be depending on how you define it your method of staining H&Es scanning the slides and certainly your computer monitor but then it says revalidation is required whenever a significant change is made to any component. So has there been any uh, discussion or feedback you've received about how you define components, or when or when not, when or when a system does not have to be revalidated? What constitutes a major change?
1: Yeah, I think the, the the short answer to that question is yes. We've got we've had that request that question uh, on several occasions, both during the uh, came up during the expert panel discussions leading to the uh, the revised guideline, and also came up following the release of the of the 2013 guideline. The short answer is, a like a major or substantive change to the system would include something such as a brand new scanner, which uh, particularly if it's from a different vendor not so much on the monitor side so the way, way, the way we've chosen to provide uh, guidance on uh, with respect to monitors is if you have a, a previously validated system and then you introduce a new monitor into it a different uh, either a different brand of monitor different size etc different specifications of the monitor that it's acceptable for one to perform more of a verification as opposed to a repeat validation just to make sure that you're calibrating with a, against a previously validated system so that when you introduce a new component such as a monitor that you you're still coming up with the same the same results and making the same digital interpretations
0: all right so let's get into what's new what's new in these upcoming guidelines because i think a big thing that's new is collaborating with these other professional societies including the ascp and the api nicole tell us what that was like how you brought them in what input they had and then um, then dr evans can get into maybe the specific changes that these new guidelines are going to feature
2: I mentioned earlier about collaborating with others, so that is new. We have representatives from all three organizations on the panel, and I just think that that brings their perspectives from those different organizations. Um, some of them, you know, have a little bit of a different twist. CAP is the leading organization for board certified pathologists. And ASCP includes, you know, tech, technologists as well. So as Dr. Evans mentioned, we had, a I believe, a histotechnologist on our committee. So those are some of the things that we did. Another new and improved, maybe, um, thing that we did this time was we used uh, GRADE, which is a, a methodology or a framework for how to develop recommendations. And it's a really, rigorous process that we follow. And what happens is so in the first guideline, you know, we had um, expert consensus opinions. But in this guideline, anything that wasn't supported by the literature. And we had tables to support all of our recommendations got turned into a good practice statement. So we're making this big distinction between what we had evidence for, and how we used our considered judgment, all of the things that went into drafting the recommendations. So besides the evidence, we're taking into account uh, perspectives of pathologists and and or end users, uh, values, things like cost and implementability. So we're not doing a cost analysis, but we're just thinking broadly about several categories to determine a recommendation. And then anything that we didn't find either a lot or any evidence of in the systematic review got turned into a good practice statement. So we have fewer recommendations. We have three this time and a number, I believe, non-good practice statements. So those are some of the distinctions between uh, the original guideline and this update. Um, for the content, I'll turn that over to Dr. Evans.
0: That's a good point. I think guidelines not only have to be accurate and offer best practices but also have to reflect what's practical in the real world so dr Evans w- specifically what are what are the the changes that we're going to see in these new guidelines
1: the um, in contrast to the 2013 guideline where there were 12 recommendations that were based on on a different grading system with respect to the strength of recommendation the grade methodology divides things into recommendations and good practice statements and so this recommendations are either strong or weak recommendations depending on the strength of evidence. And then there are good practice statements. And then the good practice statements are defined as, as things that are largely intuitive. There's certainty that a given recommendation or statement would do more harm than good or more good than harm if you didn't do it or did do it, but where there's little direct evidence. So people wouldn't, you know, perform an experiment, a series of studies to generate data to to prove something that is intuitive. And so that's the the definition of a a good practice statement. There just isn't evidence that exists uh, to support or refute it, but it seems like, for the lack of a better term, it seems like a good thing to do so in terms of the uh, 2021 guideline will appear there are three strong recommendations and then nine good practice statements which are the good practice statements are largely are just different manifestations of recommendations in the 2000 uh, in the 2013 guideline and certainly the first three the strong recommendations are were core pillars of the uh, the 2013 guideline. so i can walk you through those the first strong recommendation is that the sample set for your validation study for a given intended use or application should be a, a minimum of 60 cases. You're not restricted uh, by how many cases you do. There may be, as, uh, as Nicole had mentioned, guidelines are guidelines and you're free to deviate from them where it's not practical or applicable in your given laboratory setting. The evidence suggested that, which was reaffirmed from the 2013 guideline, with a moderate quality of evidence, I should add, there were 33 studies that looked at case numbers and validation studies ranging from 40 cases to just over 8,000. This literature search picked up where the 2013 guideline left off, so it it catches all of the the studies that uh, had come out since. The long story short on it was when you stratified the number of cases with the concordance with respect to the number of cases, when you had fewer than 60 cases, then the concordance between whole slide imaging and glass slides fell off appreciably so it was only 85% concordance. Now, mind you, there were not very many studies that had done less than 60. The mean of those studies was 41. So, you know, it just is intuitive that if you have one or two discordances out of a set of 40, that it's going to have a greater proportional impact on your concordance rate, as opposed to one or two discordances out of a study of 1,000 slides or cases. So that's where the number came from, and that going above 60 cases did not appreciably or significantly increase the concordance rate. So that's how that was the evidentiary basis for the recommendation of 60 cases. The next strong recommendation was the concordance between digital and glass slide review for the same observer. That is the the same basic recommendation from the 2013 guideline. However, it was updated with one significant component. After the 2013 guideline was released, the CAP and its committees related to digital pathology were repeatedly asked the question about what's a pass-fail mark? What's an acceptable concordance? When should we not implement the technology? What's, you know, what, again, getting to the idea of pathologists wanting a hard, rigorous number. I can let Nicole speak to the center's policy on setting numbers, uh, rigorous numbers of that nature, but what we as, a, uh, as a, an expert panel decided to do was to review the concordance rate for 33 studies that had, had data that could be assessed with respect to concordance for intra-observer, where the same pathologist reviews the slides with a, a washout period by both glass slides and whole slide imaging. The mean concordance rate for 33 studies was 95.2% with a range of 91 to 97.1%. So the important point to recognize here is that 95% is not a pass-fail mark. Ideally, you would want 100% concordance if you're going to implement some new technology, but that's not realistic. It's not going to happen, and it doesn't happen, actually, if you were to do a um, an intra-observer um, study with the same pathologist reading glass slides, the same glass slides on two different occasions. You won't get 100% agreement if the cases have any degree of difficulty associated with them. So the way to interpret the 95% number, given that it's not a pass-fail mark, is that it's it's seen as um, the average. So if your concordance rate for uh, for your validation study falls below 95%, then you are... Technically speaking, you would be below the published average. I think the take-home point here is that if you have ninety-eight percent concordance, it doesn't mean that you don't have to uh, have to look at at your your sources of discordances or discrepancies between the two modalities. In fact, it's quite the opposite. So all discordances should be reconciled, studied, uh, with respect to the you know the types of cases that uh, would be considered as being problematic. Whether they would, for example, arise from just one outlier pathologist amongst a group where the the rest of a group of pathologists completing a validation study had no issues but there's one particular pathologist who had an issue with the whole slide imaging modality which can certainly happen and then most importantly whether there are correctable histology or whole slide imaging scanner issues that can be addressed that would have, you know would have contributed to uh, falling in in air quotes below average below the 95% mark so again to underscore it's not a pass fail it's just uh, it provides you with a benchmark as to what most laboratories that have, have published these studies, what they have achieved. Then finally, the last strong recommendation is with uh, respect to the washout period. And so that's the, that describes the length of time between either glass slide review and digital slide review or uh, digital slide review and glass slide review, depending on the order in which you, you complete the study. Again, the quality of, of evidence was moderate. So this recommendation was reaffirmed from the 2013 guidelines, so there was no new evidence to support any any type of substantive change. And there were 14 studies that looked at information on the washout and concordance, and the washout periods ranged from less than four weeks to more than eight weeks, and in some cases there were, you know, there are studies that have gone out beyond a year. And the bottom line was there was no influence on concordance when you stratified by washout duration. And it, it leads to an interesting discussion on attempts to, to control recall bias in pathology. Pathologists, almost every single pathologist will, who's been in practice for any length of time will tell you that there are certain cases that are once seen and never forgotten. So you're never gonna be able to control, delete those from your, from your memory. Um, and that there is actually a paucity of studies designed to identify how, how good a pathologist's memory uh, is with respect to to recall bias. Um, there's one particular study that did look at this and found that, um, that after a four-week period, pathologists could remember, uh, correctly identify 30% of cases in a set of slides that they had seen before. So, you know, as a group, we have a pretty good Pretty good recall for things that we have seen before. With respect to the, the open comment period that Nicole mentioned, it was quite interesting. The, uh, the, the feedback that we got from the respondees was quite broad, including some who said you don't even need a washout period, um, you can't control for recall bias, and then there are others that said that, that uh, the two-week recommendation which we settled on, uh, which was reaffirmed from the 2013 guideline, is far too short. And then others would say, if you go out beyond four weeks, it's too long. It makes the study impractical. It takes too long to complete. So you can see that it becomes a very complex issue, just logistically in terms of completing the studies.
0: Okay. So it sounds like the recommendations, the 12 previous recommendations have been divided up now into three recommendations and nine statements of of best practice. Dr. Andrew Evans and Nicole Thomas from the CAP, thank you so much for being with us. So before we wrap up, uh, Nicole, maybe could you tell us when and how these new guidelines uh, will be available?
2: It's going to be a journal article in Archives of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine. You can come over to the CAP's website um, on our guidelines webpage to access the article. There'll be a press release, um, email blast to all CAP members. And then we're also counting on ASCP and API, our collaborators, to disseminate the information to their membership. Not to mention, you can check us out on social media. There'll be things on Facebook, obviously other podcasts and and different things like that. So there's going to be a big, a big splash and you won't miss it.
0: All right, that, that's fantastic. And Dr. Evans, uh, before we wrap up with you, maybe tell us what things maybe were left out of the guidelines that could be in the next iteration. I think what's on people's mind is things like artificial intelligence and other aspects around computational pathology. So what's, maybe give us a taste of what's on the horizon for next time or in the near future.
1: Yeah, I think that's the artificial intelligence, machine learning uh, component is is going to be a big one, and would could actually be subject of uh, of a, a separate, completely separate guideline, but but obviously related. I mean, the technology is still attempting to find its way, largely through niche applications, um, you know, specific problem areas in surgical pathology where this technology can be used for decision support. And I think that's that's going to be the, the starting point. I think it's worth pointing out that the CAP has established a new committee on artificial intelligence. It has not yet had its first meeting, but it's coming up soon. And that's also under the uh, umbrella of the Council on Scientific Affairs. So there are a number of different committees are actually working on these issues. And, and closely tied to that, of course, will be liaising with uh, regulatory bodies such as the FDA. For appropriate and, and rigorous regulatory approval for these devices, uh, these technologies, so that when they are used by labs, that uh, you know they're done so done in a in a safe manner. Other ones too, I think, just in in terms of applications in, in pathology, it, I think there's evidence now starting to accrue for whole slide imaging and other non whole slide imaging digital pathology modalities with respect to cytopathology, uh, using these tools for remote reporting, digital assessment, etc. And I think that may be another one where we will see um, where we'll see some some uh, call for for guidance and closely related to that will be hematopathology now that there are devices that are capable of performing very high resolution 100 times magnification oil immersion scanning of of hematopathology slides, blood blood films and bone marrow aspirates uh, to provide the degree of resolution that pathologists would need in order to render um, complete and accurate diagnoses. So I think those would be the major areas that I see in terms of new, new applications of digital pathology that would require guidance. In terms of some of the, um, uh, the, the three strong recommendations and then the good practice statements that we reviewed earlier for the current guideline update, I think there will also, as new literature accrues, some of the good practice statements, there may be evidence that, that comes to the fore to, to flip those from good practice statements into, into uh, recommendations potentially. So I think it's gonna be a, a very dynamic time going forward. And uh, there will definitely be be changes coming and, and new, um, new components to guidelines.
0: Absolutely. A very dynamic time indeed, and a lot to look forward to. Well, our guests have been Dr. Andrew Evans and Nicole Thomas from the College of American Pathologists discussing uh, the 2021 update for whole slide imaging guidelines. We'll see you next time on Digital Pathology Today.
1: This has been Digital Pathology Today. Please be sure to subscribe. Thanks
2: for listening.